Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. How are Venezuela's national parks faring during these days of political and human strife in that country? Kim O'Connell provided an update with her insightful feature on the Traveler last week. Readers also learned about efforts to rehabilitate the Tidal Basin on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and about road work needed to reopen the eastern entrance to Zion National Park. You can find those and other stories about national parks at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, Dan Wank, who retired last fall from the National Park Service after more than four decades working for the agency, shares his views on the current state of that venerable agency. We also have a short interview with Catherine Malone France of the National Trust for Historic Preservation on efforts to chart a much-needed restoration of the Tidal Basin at the National Mall. Erica Zambello concludes this episode with her reflections from a visit to Little River Canyon National Preserve in Alabama. Dan Wank spent more than four decades working for the National Park Service. Though he started out as a landscape architect, he rose to deputy director of the agency and even interim CEO of the National Park Foundation before settling back at Yellowstone National Park as superintendent. Last fall, rather than taking a forced assignment back in Washington, D.C., Wank decided to retire after eight years in Yellowstone. Since then, he's watched the National Park Service drift without a permanent director at the helm, and as the Trump administration tried to keep national parks open and functioning normally during the partial government shutdown. The other day, we reached out to Wink to get his thoughts on his beloved agency. Hi, Dan. How are you today? Thanks for joining us. Well, doing well. It's uh, it's uh, a great day to, to be uh, looking out the window at it raining and snowing. Yeah, well, um, it is uh, getting to be mud season in the Rockies, so I guess we shouldn't be too surprised. No, no. Now, you've uh, been, quote-unquote, retired, uh, so to speak, since last fall. Just kind of curious what you've been working on or how you've been spending those uh, those months away from a full-time job. Well, I, it has been just about six months. And, um, you know, in that six months, it's uh, uh, when you retire from the National Park Service, when you're living in a national park, uh, not only do you retire and walk out the office, but you also have to relocate and relocate a household. So, we uh, we are uh, we moved to Rapid City, South Dakota, where we have uh, two of our children and our grandchildren live, and uh, we've been trying to settle into our home. And uh, then we're doing a little bit of travel, uh, not as much as we hope to do in the future, but uh, and also um, doing some lectures uh, different places around the country about things that are important uh, to us uh, in terms of whether it be wildlife or whether it be the things that are facing the national parks as we move forward and, um, and talking to some folks about opportunities to continue to contribute. It it sounds like you're just as busy as you were before. Well, certainly it's, I'm not, I'm also um, able to go to the, the, the local uh, coffee shop in the morning and grab a cup of coffee, um, uh, read the newspaper at a, or the, read the news on the internet at a little uh, more leisurely path, pace. Uh, certainly it's a more relaxed uh, time than it was previously. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, it's been an interesting time with the current administration and, and certainly um, every administration, whichever party, Democrat, Republican, there's always going to be some 
particular currents that, that flow through that the administration wants to see integrated um, across the, the country. Should we, always, should we be surprised at all by the current state of affairs with the, the Park Service specifically? Unfortunately, I don't think so. I think there's, um, there's, there's ebbs and flows to you know, an administration that's come in. I've been sort of at the, um, since the um, Bush II administration, uh, I've really been in lead- was in leadership positions within the National Park Service, and and you see administrations uh, exit, and you you see what uh, the emphasis that they place on on their last years of administration, and you see administrations come in, and the emphasis that they want to place uh, on on what they're doing, and and it's uh, it's, it's in some ways predictable um, in terms of how they deal with things like regulation and policies. Uh, of the National Park Service, and and so I think I think um, career employees of the Park Service sort of get ready for it, and and that's not in a negative sense for either administration. It's getting ready for it in terms of trying to anticipate the kinds of things that they'll be asked to uh, address and to look at as they move forward. It's um, I think some administrations the pendulum swings a little bit farther um, in in each direction, but uh, but it's predictable. Yeah. Now, um, you know, I, I've always thought that uh, the National Park Service was in place to to protect and preserve these incredible places, whether it's a, a cultural site or a scenic vista park or, you know, geothermal at Yellowstone, that they were supposed to protect and preserve these places for the American public, for today's generations and tomorrow's generations. And yet we see, you know, administrations come in and, and kind of guide the park service in, in a in a specific direction a- am i being too ideal, idealistic in in my expectations what i have for the park service no i think you're you know one of the things that we always have is we have uh we can rely on law regulation and policy i think the law never the law rarely changes um and i think the you know the bottom line of the law we are here to uh, protect unimpaired for future generations the resources of the National Park Service and while providing for visitor use. The the question is, and that gets down to regulation and policy, is how you divide between the protection of those resources and uh, appropriate visitor use, um, you know, of the of the resources. And I think every administration probably has a little bit different uh, view of what that, uh, how those values in conflict are. You know how they how they view what should be the preeminent value. My personal belief is that Congress made it very clear in 1978 under the Redwoods Act that the preeminent value when those two things come into conflict is the preservation of resources. But every administration, I think, pushes the lines in both directions. I guess um, one of those lines uh, was just recently pushed during the partial government shutdown when. The administration wanted to keep the national parks open with uh, um, what's been described as a, a skeleton workforce. It, yes, it really was. I mean, a previous uh, previous to that, with the exception of the first shutdown in the, in this administration, there was the the same attempt to keep it open uh, for for visitor use. The difference was it lasted you know two days, and I can't remember the exact number one or one to three days versus thirty five days, and and what that really meant and what it looked like. Unfortunately, uh, we've all been through many shutdowns. You know, some of the last ones, uh, even in the Obama administration, there were there was a time frame of like uh, one to three days to close parks down, to get people out of 
uh, lodging facilities for concessionaire lodging facilities, et cetera, and to to have an orderly shutdown of the facility. Um, and and then literally a skeleton crew in order to provide the protection that that park needed to perhaps maintain the operation of water and wastewater because you still have employees living in the park to to um, to make sure that uh, you had crews in there for fire protection, et cetera. And, and also you had to man the gates. The latest uh, rendition of uh, a shutdown was one where they were asking skeleton crews to um, to still provide the law, necessary law enforcement to protect the park, which was difficult, if not impossible, in some places, and then and then they were asking uh, others, whether it be concessioners or, or donated dollars, uh, to keep um, uh, operating facilities, and and that had, uh, as we saw, uh, there were there was resource problems. Uh, there were also uh, in terms of people abusing or, uh, the resources within parks. There were also Law enforcement issues, and uh, I think there. I think many of us believe there were going to be safety issues, which there were. Other things that uh, were unacceptable uh, impacts to parks or potential impacts to parks and to people. Now, I'm wondering the most egregious example that came to to our attention um, was in Joshua Tree National Park, where um, you know people were driving off road. There was a, a, at least one Joshua Tree cut down. Have you heard of anything um, similar or, or just as egregious elsewhere through your sources in the park system? You know, I, I'm i aware, and uh, unfortunately, I'm not aware. I can't remember right now if it was actually in this shutdown, if it was the previous one, where, uh, for example, I think it may have been the previous one, uh, where someone at Old Faithful literally took their snowmobile uh, from the uh, parking area and took it around to uh, the uh, between the Old Faithful Visitor Center and and uh, Old Faithful Geyser. Yeah, I'm aware of um, people um, getting themselves into um, um, predicaments where they needed to be helped, if you will, and in providing resources uh, to to go in and to provide the assistance that they needed takes you know takes more time. I don't think there was anything that uh, you could you could point to that said, well, because we didn't have the resources and it took us. 30 minutes or 40 minutes longer to get there, that there was some uh, additional negative consequence. But I, th- I think there's probably examples throughout the parks that I don't have all of them where, where there was behaviors that certainly didn't rise to the level of what happened at Joshua Tree, that behaviors, though, that were inappropriate. And, um, and the situation is one where I believe that if it were to continue or if it was um, seen as a success, unfortunately, it's a, a short-term success. If it would be repeated often, I think people would become more bold in terms of what they were doing and the kind of actions they were taking because they would see the consequences as being very minimal or things that they would not uh, um would not be known in terms to the to the national park service to others that they had done these things and the long-term effect of that i think is extremely negative we've been talking with dan wank who who spent a four-decade career with the national park service his most recent uh, role before uh, retiring in the fall of 2018 was superintendent of yellowstone national park we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, 
please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. The National Park Service employee morale has in recent years been an issue. Um, it, it's always in the, the federal um, best places to work survey seems to be near the bottom. Recently, um, under the current administration, we've got key vacancies from the director of the National Park Service. We don't have a permanent director um, confirmed by the Senate to vacancies at the Midwest, Intermountain, and the National Capital Regions. Do those vacancies impact morale, or do they, um, should they concern us in terms of the day-to-day operation of the Park Service? I think they certainly impact the morale. I think that certainly we have um, very competent, good, highly qualified professionals that are in those positions as acting. But I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is what that says by keeping those vacancies to the, to the employees of the National Park Service. You know, I think the question is, is where does the administration, what kind of value does the administration have that they would allow a directorship of the National Park Service to go without a, a Senate-confirmed director for over two years, that they would allow not to have senior leadership in place within the National Park Service? And so I think it's, a, it's an overall effect where the, the question, I think, is raised by employees of how are we valued? as an agency, in an organization? How's our mission valued if those positions are left vacant? So I, I think it does have an overall effect on the morale of the National Park Service. And uh, I think the circumstances, frankly, that uh, many of those vacancies occurred where, where I think people questioned uh, the value that was placed on the professionalism of, of individuals that were in some of those positions uh, that have, have now left is, is also you know, a, a question that's raised by by employees of the Park Service. To your point there, we just lost another um, key superintendent in the National Park Service. Uh, Christine Leonards um, basically walked away um, after a situation at Grand Canyon where uh, a whistleblower made allegations against her, claiming that she had created a hostile workforce. 
the Office of Inspector General at the Interior Department investigated that and found the charges completely unfounded, cleared her of everything, and she was welcomed back to, to Grand Canyon National Park. And yet she decided that the situation wasn't comfortable for her to, to succeed in her role because the, um, the whistleblower was still there. What signal does that send to uh, superintendents elsewhere across the system and, and to those employees who thought that uh, the superintendent, Len Hertz, was doing a great job? Well, you know, I think I think I, I need to talk about this in general and not uh, about Chris Leonard's and uh, case specifically because I don't know the I don't know all the facts and I don't know all the issues. But but I think I think you cite a very important thing, and that is that is you know where we are in the whole issue. Uh, and obviously, uh, the workplace environment with throughout the National Park Service has been a, a issue of focus for a number of years. And it should be an it should be an issue of focus, and and people deserve a place to work that's safe and free from uh, harassment uh, of any kind. And so it it is our obligation to make sure that we have that kind of a workplace within the federal government, the in in the National Park Service. I think the message that's been sent right now in terms of how we're approaching problems of charges of a hostile work environment, for example, within the workforce is is makes it very difficult for supervisors to have uh, to take actions. It makes it very difficult for them to take actions and feel like they're going to be supported in their actions throughout the line. I think the supervisors have a high desire to make sure that they take the actions they need to take to create the kind of environment that we all deserve to work in. But uh, there are examples throughout the service that when a supervisor does take an action, when there is a claim of inappropriate actions by a supervisor, that we move the supervisor out of the situation and we investigate, whether it be at the level you're talking about with Chris Leonard's or whether it be at a, a much lower level within the organization. Depending on the outcome of that, and you know, we may have situations where the supervisor has done things wrong. And, and we need to take appropriate actions to deal with them. But where an employee basically has the ability to dictate the terms of what happens with their supervisor, maybe we, I think it's wrong. Maybe we weren't taking the actions we needed to take quickly enough throughout the service, but we put it, we put supervisors and employees in a situation where how does a supervisor come back after they're exonerated and and deal with an employee who still is in that workplace and without and and assume for a second that that employee may need to have disciplinary taken action taken uh, for future actions that they do or things that they don't do or or their their behaviors haven't changed every supervisor is going to think twice about it because of things like what happened to Chris Leonard's in terms of being removed from her position for five months. And I think it's a very difficult position. I think there, I don't know what the answer is, Kurt, but I think there has to be a better way to ensure that we have the workplace that people deserve and that we're doing the right things. And at the same time that we find a way to hold uh, supervisors or fellow employees accountable for their actions in the workplace without creating an environment of incredible distrust and incredible, I think, hesitation on the part of supervisors and employees to bring things forward. I don't think it's working the way it is going right now. 
No, it's certainly a tough challenge. Um, I was reading a case study uh, the other week um, where a new CEO came into a company and, and did not like the culture and thought it was uh, um, damaging the company's reputation. And, and basically, he, he turned over the entire Workforce, and of course, you know it's it's one thing to do that with a small company. It's another thing when you've got uh, twenty thousand employees working for the National Park Service. How you go about um, addressing those issues is a, a challenge that's uh, difficult, obviously. Well, you know, I think I, you know, I, I'm not trying to blame the the federal employment uh, system here, but but I've only had one opportunity in my forty year career where I went into a position and I was when I was um, uh, manager of the Denver Service Center, when I went into the position and virtually I was able to select every senior manager with one exception within the first year of my time in that position. I, I used to, um, and, and it was an office that I think uh, has, in fact, is, is a highly productive, it's a great office now, but it was, it was going through some challenges at the time. And I cannot imagine that a board of directors of a corporation in America that would bring in a new CEO, CEO and say, we want you to change you know, the culture of this organization. We want you to make this a more highly productive, but oh, by the way, we're not going to let you change your senior leadership. When you look at the National Park Service, whether it's a director coming into the Washington office or whether it's a regional director coming into a regional office or a park superintendent coming into a to park area, Rarely, if ever, does that individual get a chance to put the management team in place that they want. It takes time. It takes attrition. And, and those things uh, oftentimes, uh, I think, lead to perpetuation of the status quo more so than the kind of changes that, that different places, different organizations or sub-organizations need and are recognized that are needed by the managers. Yeah. Do you um, have any concerns that uh, long-lasting damage is being done to the park system or the park service um, under the current way things are being managed? Um, and if so, what specifically worries you? You know, I, I do have concerns that um, we are not doing the kind of things that we need to do to take the National Park Service into in, successfully into the next century. And I think that concerns comes from almost a fear of, of what is what our actions are going to mean and how those actions are going to be seen. And we're not managing from a position, managers aren't managing from a position of strength at this time, because I don't know that we feel like we're being supported at the highest levels of the organization. And, and until we get a new director in there, until that new director sets the tone for expectations, uh, all we're seeing is sort of as a perpetuation of of the status quo, and the status quo hasn't been working. So I think there's a lot of things that uh, do depend on on uh, the new director and uh, the tone that they set at the top. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there today, Dan. Uh, certainly appreciate uh, you making time out. We've been talking with Dan Wink, uh, a long-term uh, uh, employee of the National Park Service from uh, the, the field ranks all the way up to the top office in Washington, D.C. Uh, he retired last fall from Yellowstone National Park. Um, Dan, we'll, we'll have to catch up with you later down the road. There's some many more issues and, and topics in the Park Service we can enjoy talking about. I would enjoy the opportunity. Thank you, Kurt.
Dude Ranches have been showcasing western landscapes and national parks and their associated experiences for generations of families, many who come back year after year after year to relive the experience. And why not? These typically week-long vacations revolve around trail rides that carry you into these marvelous settings. This western industry literally grew up with the national park system. There are ranches out there that relish and promote their proximity to national parks. Ranches nearby to Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Parks in Wyoming, or that sidle up to Saguaro National Park in Arizona. When considering a Dude Ranch vacation, be sure to look for the establishment's endorsement from the Dude Ranchers Association. This organization doesn't take membership lightly. Ranches are evaluated for two years on everything from their lodgings to how they care for their horses before they're granted membership. Today, only about 100 ranches have qualified for that distinction. The Dude Ranchers Association. Check it out at duderanch.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The maintenance backlog in the national park system is well known. At nearly $12 billion, it reaches into just about every one of the 418 units of the national park system. Overdue maintenance work stands out at the National Mall and Memorial Parks in Washington, D.C. In the tidal basin of that area, seawaters slowly creep up and cover sidewalks with the tides, and there are places where the seawall is crumbling. Retaining walls are in need of repair, and roots of some of the famed cherry trees need better care. With that understood, a campaign is launched to come up with a creative and long-lasting blueprint for restoring the tidal basin. We caught up the other day with Catherine Malone France of the National Trust for Historic Preservation to discuss that effort, known as the Ideas Lab, a think tank approach to rehabilitating the iconic basin. Among our questions was whether this philanthropic effort might convince Congress that private dollars, not more federal appropriations, can be used to tackle the maintenance needs of the park system. Well, I don't I don't think that that's the the plan at all. I mean, at this point, I think the private philanthropy is, you know, supporting the ideas lab. Uh, And then, you know, again, it's not a design competition. It's an ideas lab where we'll have a small number of teams that include landscape architects, architects, engineers, and others looking, again, holistically at all of the threats that face the tidal basin. And then, and you know, with the very full support of the National Park Service, then providing them with all of those ideas so that they can then initiate their process, which, as you know, includes environmental review, master planning, and ultimately designing the long-term solutions. Understandably, as the tidal basin is at sea level, we asked about climate change and sea level rise and if that would be taken into consideration by the engineers and architects. Absolutely. Not only what's happening now, but again, we want to, to make sure this site is sustainable for the long term. So also, what are, what are future impacts going to be? So, you know, hydrology is definitely going to be part of the mix here and understanding, again, what's happening now, but also 
what we anticipate happening in the future and how we can prepare for that and mitigate it. The Ideas Lab, funded with a $750,000 grant from the American Express Foundation, will be up and running later this year, with its proposals expected about a year from now. It sounds like a rich and robust initiative that will produce some very exciting proposals. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. When someone says the word Alabama, what do you imagine? For most, I'm guessing the melody of Sweet Home Alabama pops into your head, or scenes from the movie by the same name. For me, most of what I picture actually stems from a television show, Heart of Dixie, which centers around a young doctor moving to the state in search of a mysterious father. Not exactly based on reality. What I didn't know until I moved into the next door Florida panhandle was that Alabama is an ecologically diverse, beautiful state stretching from sugar sand coastline to the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. During a five-day break from my usual work and graduate school studies, my husband and I came up with an ambitious plan. Visit all five of Alabama's national park sites in a single week. The first, Little River Canyon National Preserve. That sound you hear is the giant waterfall. Designated in 1992, the preserve was, quote, established to protect and preserve the natural, scenic, recreational, and cultural resources of the area and to provide for public enjoyment of those resources. The canyon itself, where we stood to look at the waterfall, is the most dramatic element of the park unit, in some places falling nearly 500 feet to the edge of the river below. Some people even rock climb here, and the waterway is known for its fishing opportunities, but we didn't opt for climbing or fishing. It was hiking that we sought. Most start their explorations of the park at Little River Falls, and we proved no exception. The moment I shut the door to the car, I could hear the rushing water pounding on the rocks below, the white froth of the falls itself peeking through the swath of forest separating the parking area from the viewing platform. So everyone loves waterfalls, but I just have to pause for one moment here to explain why I love waterfalls so much. While my current home state is absolutely gorgeous, full of beaches and pine forests and palm trees, Florida is so flat, so flat. 
In fact, ravines that are only 100 feet deep are carefully protected within state parks or lauded for their dramatic topography. Sure, we have a few waterfalls. There's even a state park named after a waterfall. But they are nowhere near the size and strength of Little River Falls. We actually watched the water for a long time, snapping photos to send to our friends and relatives. But the hiking trails called, and we traced the edge of the canyon before picking our way down to the rock-lined river below. We've made our way down to the edge of the river, and it's basically sheer cliffs going straight up in two directions. These giant boulders have fallen into the river and kind of are juxtaposed with the shoreline. And it's a little breezy, but every time the sun comes out, the water turns from this deep, deep greenish brown to bright blue and emerald. It's, it's really amazing. The boulders looked huge, sitting in giant piles like mini mountains, oblong shapes and sizes adding to the complexity of the riverbed itself. By the time we made it to the river's edge, the sun began to shine in earnest. Every time its rays escaped the prevailing cloud cover, the water would turn this crazy, brilliant blue-green, perfectly clear and shimmering in the noontime light. My husband is an avid angler. He's actually obsessed with fishing, and I would put his uh, love of breathing just below his love of fishing. Already he began to talk of a return trip, of the flies he would cast, the equipment he would bring, all to target the rare red-eye bass. Luckily, from our vantage point, we actually couldn't see any silhouettes of swimming fish, even with our polarized sunglasses. And I say luckily, because I'm pretty sure if he spotted one, I would be watching the spot while he went to the nearest gear and tackle store. Originally, we planned to drive the Overlook Road, stopping at different pull-offs to take in the river from above. However, in the end, we couldn't pull ourselves away from the edge of the rushing water, preferring to bask in the warmth of the rocks before eventually hiking back up to our car. I may see emerald hues in the Gulf of Mexico near my home, but I felt a special magic observing the color in a freshwater river, like nearby fairies had dusted the stream bed with an elixir. For those looking to make the visit themselves, stop at the visitor center first for a map, a stamp, and helpful directions from one of the rangers, and prepare to spend a lot of time just looking at the water. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.